It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Kelly may have given the president some cover politically for now, but folks, if you're left with a really bad taste in your mouth from this whole thing, you're not alone. I did not say what she said. We've seen our discourse degraded by casual cruelty. But in this White House, you must always counterpunch, always be on the attack. This most personal and horrific experience, just one more piece of ammunition in the snark wars where nothing matters anymore except for scoring points. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast the show about the man responsible for the bull market. Thanks to him, bullshit keeps hitting new highs almost every day. Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg. We have some announcements. First, for those of you who've been enjoying our Trumpcast book club with Katie Royfe and Philip Gravich, I think you may know that our next book is The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood. We're going to talk about that next week. We've also picked our book for November. It's a really interesting choice. It's a novel called Night Rider by Robert Penn Warren. It's set in tobacco country in Kentucky and Tennessee, and it's basically about mob behavior in the white supremacist South in the early part of the 20th century. I've started it. I already can really recommend this book. It's not the easiest book to find, but it is in print, and you can certainly get a copy on Amazon if you'd like to read it along with us. Then I want to tell you about some live shows. There's a Slate event on November 8th called The People vs. Trump, Year One. It's at the New School in Greenwich Village. Jamel Bowie will be there. Dahlia Lithwick will be there. Julia Turner will be there. And they've got some great guests to talk about the first year of Trump, including Jelani Cobb from The New Yorker. The next week, on November 14th, Trumpcast will be live at the North Theater in San Francisco with Jamel, Virginia Heffernan, and a special guest. You know, Slate Plus members get a discount on tickets for these events. And Slate Plus members, stay tuned to hear me talk to Steve Waltine, who's been doing those hilarious Rex Tillerson denies sketches for us. Steve's day job is as a writer on the new Comedy Central show, The Opposition, with Jordan Klepper. He's a very funny man. Tickets for both of those events are available at slate.com slash live. Coming up on today's show, I'm joined by someone I've waited far too long to have on as a guest. It's Slate's defense and foreign policy writer, Fred Kaplan. I'll be back to talk to Fred about Niger, North Korea, Iraq, Burma, and more right after this break. This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, 
you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. I'm joined in the studio today by Fred Kaplan. Slate readers know him as the author of the War Stories column, which has been going since I hired him as editor of Slate Early, more than more than 10 years the end ago. Of 2002. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it's uh, it's one of the best things you can be reading about military and foreign policy. And uh, Fred's also the author of several books, including most recently Dark Territory, The Secret History of Cyber War, which was published last year. Right. Fred, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks. Good to be here. So I wanted to have you on for kind of a roundup of, of a bunch of stuff that's been going on, North Korea, Iran, Burma. But first, mm. can we talk for a minute about this story this week, which I think, you know, listeners will be forgiven for, for not keeping track of it. I haven't completely kept track of it, about Trump's calls to the families of American soldiers killed in action, most recently the four soldiers killed in Niger and these uh, claims he made about his predecessors and who did call and who didn't call and what he said on the call. What is this all about? (laughs) It's all about, as most things are, uh, Donald Trump putting blame on everybody but himself and not taking responsibility for anything. You know, as you know, four special forces were, were, were killed in Niger uh, the mission of what they're doing isn't entirely clear. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of the missing headline <clears throat> here is, right, why are we in Niger? I didn't know we had we had special forces in Niger. Presumably they were advisors on some kind of anti-terrorist. Right. I guess it and would be Boko Haram Chad and was that helping part of the world. And, yeah. Chad, you know, which is which is just as a side point, they've they've put on the on the they ban. They pulled out because of the travel ban. They yeah. put, and they apparently they put Chad on the travel ban because Chad ran out of passport paper. I read that. I mean, Jesus, of all, of all things, I mean, you know, you think you'd find a way around that one for an ally. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I'm sorry, I'm already getting this <laughs> yeah, off, right. off, off so the So four point. of these guys were killed, and uh, days and days go by when. Trump hasn't said anything, and he apparently hasn't contacted the the survivors of, of any of these people. And then finally, he calls up one of them, and who was sitting in a car with a Florida congresswoman who was a friend of hers, and the, was put on speakerphone. And apparently, Trump said something like, "Well, uh, he knew what he was in for, uh, but I guess it's sad anyway." And she broke down crying and said later that he was being insensitive, and Trump denied it and started blaming the wacky congresswoman for making this public. And then and then the part that I find kind of disturbing, really, is that uh, General Kelly, the chief of staff, goes before the press and defends the president and says that he was the one who told him to say something like this. And therefore, since he's a four-star general, that should be beyond criticism. And, you know, about, about two-thirds of what he said was describing what it's like to be a soldier and have one of your fellow soldiers killed in battle and what you do and the, the ritual that you go through that you other people don't know anything about. And so, you know, you're, you're being unpatriotic even for questioning any of this. And, you know, here's the thing. I mean, obviously, I mean, I have nothing but respect for these people and, and admiration for their courage even when the, the mission that they're fighting for is questionable or, or worse. But 
One possible dark side of having an all-volunteer army is that it does create this kind of culture of superiority mm. among those who are in, in uniform. And, you know, it's, it's true that only about 1% of the population is, is, is in uniform at any one time, and they're taking on an, an enormous burden. And so the rest of us kind of go for this because, partly out of guilt, you know, we're kind of like, remember James Fallows many years ago, wrote an article in the Washington Monthly called What Did You Do in the Class War, Daddy, about all the people like him. The consequences of an all-volunteer yeah. army. I mean, after Vietnam, the military right. didn't want conscription. And yes, of course, that's right. And they yeah. still don't. And they yeah. still don't, really. Yeah. But it does lead to this kind of Praetorian Guard kind of mentality. And, and the real danger is if they start thinking we're better than the rest of you. Uh, we know more about what's important than the rest of you. And I think that um, that Kelly's talk came very close to that. And, and given his how close he is to the ultimate power in our country, you know, one step away in the White House, it, it, it's not a— it's not a healthy thing for a democracy, I think. And we've gotten into this dynamic now where those of us who fear Trump's irrationality and lack of competence and, and ability are relying on the military people yeah. around him, Kelly and Mattis, as the people who are competent. Yeah, the grown-ups, the grown-ups grown in the room. The grown-ups yeah. in the room. And, you know, the, it, it's, a, it's a joke, but that there is this kind of... Uh, trust, you know, that would yeah. prevent Trump, we hope, from doing something terrible, from and, and using nuclear weapons. But it does, to accept that or to promote that idea, does compromise this fundamental idea of civilian control, yeah. that the military works for the elected civilian government and not the other way around. I, I would rather have, perhaps in addition to these guys, a first-class diplomat in a similar position, somebody like a Ryan Crocker, who's also there. Because, look, Mattis, McMaster, I mean, these guys are very smart generals, but they're generals. Their background is in not just being a general, but in the last 20 years, fighting wars. This is what they do. And they're smart about it, and they're strategic about it. But they've never been involved in creation or even execution of national policy. You know, it's, it's the old story about the carpenter. You know, he, he sees a problem and he sees, well, I need to hammer a nail in here. And they're, what they've been trained to do is look at a crisis or, or, or a, you know, some hot spot in the world or some developing crisis and, and think first and foremost about the, the military options. Now, let me push back on that a little bit, Fred, because isn't it precisely because they have experience with using the military as a fighting force that they tend to be more reluctant to use it? I mean, more often, I would say the dynamic over the past several decades have been the Dick Cheney's and George W. Bush's of the world have been ready to use military force and the military itself, no. in the form of Colin Powell or, Powell or whoever else, have been the ones trying to put the brakes on. I agree, absolutely. And Mattis, once, uh, when he was uh, commander of CENTCOM, Central Command, uh, said, well, if you, if, you, if you cut back on the State Department, uh, you'd better buy me more bullets because I'm going to need them. Because, and here we are cutting back on the State Department by one-third. And yet, here's the thing, and Mattis understands that most crises really re re requires a diplomatic solution, a political solution, but he's not the one who's ever done that. And there's nobody else right now who's equipped or experienced enough to do that. 
Tillerson, you know, I mean, I don't see him as the guy. And even if he were disposed to it, you know, there's nobody under him at the State Department. There are no assistant secretaries of state or, for that matter, assistant secretaries of defense for Pacific and Northeast Asia, for the Middle East, for all these places where you really need somebody who, A, has experience and knowledge, B, has the the, the legitimacy of, like, I am speaking for the administration, to be able to go to Korea and Japan and do a shuttle diplomacy or to talk to people and assure them of our of our security guarantees or whatever it is you want to talk about it, or to go to Kirkuk and say, you know, we... In Iraq, we, yeah. yes. I mean, we have amazing contacts with both the Iraqi government and the Kurds, and we've relied on both. And you can't just say, okay, well, they're in a civil war right now. I'm just going to leave that up to them. That's, that's, the, the war that's going on right now between, between the Kurds and the Iraqi government is maybe the most easily predictable consequence of, of, of an after effect of pretty much destroying ISIS on the ground. Mm. This was going to happen, and we seem to have been completely unprepared for it and still don't want to do anything about it. You know, uh, Bannon talked about how Trump was going to, what was it, to dismantle the administrative state or something like that. That's what's happened. And maybe oh, maybe Trump thought that what this would lead to was to concentrate power in the White House, concentrate power with him. But look, even if he were a lot smarter and more worldly than he is, no president can do all this kind of stuff by himself. I mean, you often have this struggle between the White House and the State Department as the sort of power center for foreign policy making. You had it between Hillary Clinton and mm-hmm. Barack Obama. You you always have some version of it. But what's different this time is there seems to be that the State Department is is just massively underpowered. Right. Tillerson has got no authority. He's been publicly undercut yep. repeatedly by the president. But the president, there's not a National Security Council apparatus that's substituting for it. The policy, it's more like a policy void than than policy dominant. There is an NSC staff, and much of which now McMaster has appointed, and there are some good people on the staff. But, yeah, you, you, you need a good second tier in both the State Department and the Pentagon, Assistant Secretaries of State and Defense, who go out and, and, and do the day-to-day manage. Most of what being a big power is about is management. A lot of it isn't. It's not really even that much initiatives. or It's managing your, your alliances. That, that's 90% of the work. It's like, you know, especially in Asia, where the Japanese, the joke there, they're so worried all the time about being abandoned I mean, I know assistant secretaries of state for Pacific Northeast Asia, 80% of their job was being on the phone with the foreign minister of Japan practically every day, just kind of patting their back, saying, we'll be there for you, we'll be there for you. Maintaining the relationship. Yeah, maintaining the relationship. It's, it's, it's a hard thing, and you can't do it with just a couple of people. Even if Tillerson were a lot more up to speed than he seems to be, can't you? You can't send Tillerson off to South Korea every three weeks. It just, it, it just, he doesn't have time for that. Well, Tillerson was in his clumsy way trying to open up a channel to North Korea. What yeah. seemed clumsy about it was that he was public that he was that's, trying trying to do it. That's but, the mistake. But yeah. <laughs> but but that wasn't the reason that Trump undercut him and said it's pointless talking to these people. What was? 
What's in Trump's head about North Korea? What, what do you think he was trying to do? I mean, it looked to me, and I think you might have said this in a piece of yours, that it looked like he was aping what he'd heard about Nixon's madman well, that's, theory, that's, that he was trying to set up a good cop, bad cop dynamic. That's the kind of optimistic view. Like, that's the best case let's scenario assume, if he was pretending let's to be insane. That, yeah, let's <laughs> assume that he's doing, that he's strategic about this. What's going on? Well, it could be that he's, I mean, yeah, this dates back, your reference to Nixon, he Nixon called it the madman theory. When the Paris peace talk started for the Vietnam War, he told Kissinger, go to, go to Paris, tell Lee Duc and the others that, oh, this guy, this guy Nixon is crazy. His, his anti-communism is intense. He could, he could drop a nuclear bomb. And then as Nixon said, Ho Chi Minh will be at the tables in two days. Well, no, it wasn't true. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe they didn't believe it. I mean, Nixon had a record, but it wasn't actually of being a crazy guy. So maybe they just didn't believe it. Maybe they believe it about Trump. Trump has has said this to kind of people. I want you to to tell them that I'm I'm kind of crazy about something. But here's the the problem. What if they call your bluff? What if you're like, okay, I'm going to just bomb them. I'm going to yeah, deterrence that doesn't work. Diplomacy, no, we've had enough of that. Time is running out. You know, I'm prepared. We're lock and load. And then what if they don't do anything? Then what do you do? You either lose credibility or you do something yeah, crazy. That's right. Yeah. And so which one is he more inclined to do? And then you've got, which kind of surprises me, McMaster. I mean, I don't quite, I mean, McMaster. You've this, been very disappointed in McMaster. You were an admirer of McMaster. Yeah. Well, you know, he uh, he wrote a book called Dereliction of Duty about the, the lapses and constitutional obligations of the Joint Chiefs during the Vietnam War. And I think... I think he could write an autobiography with a similar title now. <laughs> Volume two. <laughs> Volume two. My story. My years in it with Trump. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but no, he has said about North Korea, he has said deterrence doesn't work with these people. And I don't quite understand why not. Because what is what is Kim, what is the entire Kim family interested in most of all? Self-preservation. Survival, yeah. Well, deterrence works pretty well with people who work, care about nothing but their survival. It's like, if you do X, we are going to blow you up. That's pretty good. I think it does work. Uh, second, he said that, uh, you know, we cannot, our, our condition is that they have to get rid of all of their nuclear weapons, and that's just not going to happen. I mean, look, if the most rational person on earth were the head of North Korea right now, his number one priority would be to get some nuclear weapons as fast as possible. Because I think, and I've talked with people who really know North Korea quite well, who agree with this, their view of nuclear weapons, they don't have anything. They don't have any resources. They're impoverished. They've got nothing but a pocket full of nukes, puts them on the map, and deters others from attacking them. I really don't think that once they have an ICBM capability, they're going to attack California. You know, they'll have maybe 12 or 20 nuclear weapons, and we've got 4,500. I, I don't see where the math goes with that. That their rhetoric is crazy or sounds crazy but, to us, but their behavior is still yeah, rational self-preservation. Their rhetoric has been the same since Kim Il-sung, the current leader's grandfather, created the nation. He had this view that North Korea is a shrimp among whales, and the way that you stay alive is to play the whales off each other and to terrify them. And what they're not used to is seeing an American president indulging in the same game. And nobody quite knows 
where this is going to go. Is he doing this as kind of, and you know, you had Bob Corker, you know, not not a, a wild man or a lefty at all. Republican chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, you know, saying in an interview that, you know, some people think there's a good guy, bad guy thing going on. That That's not what it is at all. These guys, they're just in over their heads. And so if you think that you're not going to negotiate unless the North Koreans agree to get rid of their nuclear weapons and uh, they don't believe in deterrence and diplomacy, we've done enough of that and it never works. If you believe all those three planks, you know, it looks like the logical correlation is you, you're, going, you're going to attack them at some point. And at that point, then if you're North Korea, and even if this is all just a game to get them to come to the tables, why should they go to the tables and give up their nukes? I mean, look at what's going on with Iran. Iran dismantled their nuclear force to an extent that I don't think anybody would have predicted. And yet Trump has decertified the agreement anyway, even though the IAEA and the EU and everybody else has said, well, they're, and all of his advisors, they are, they're conforming to the deal. They're, they're following it. You and said, he gives you, it up anyway. So how, why should, if I'm North Korea, and then I'm looking at Saddam Hussein, he gave up his nukes, dead. You know, Omar Gaddafi, same thing, dead. Kim Jong-un, alive. <laughs> and he wants to keep it that way. So he is giving this guy, even if you think that this is a strategic game to kind of, you know, the madman theory, it's giving him no room to maneuver on negotiating a solution. And if we're trying to, to compel China to put pressure on North Korea, what, what is it that exactly that we want them to do? What, what do we want China to do? I don't, I don't know. You said that Trump's speech about Iran last week was I think you said the most dishonest speech he's given as president, which is a high tall, high tall or, order. But uh, might be explain why that <clears throat> why that is. He claimed basically he claimed Iran was in violation of the agreement, and it's not. No one else thinks it's it not. is in any in, in any serious and, in anything and, other than a highly technical way. It's not even in a tech. He, he gave three examples. One was that uh, they've exceeded they they twice exceeded the limits on on uh, holding of heavy water. Well, they did a little bit. It was a miscalculation. They instantly went back to the normal. And it doesn't even matter. I mean, it's for yeah, it weapons just some in the future. Water. It wasn't the, yeah. Well, it's for weapons they might build in the future. But they, they, they conformed to the agreement after it was noted. It wasn't anything used. The second was that they are allowed to continue to develop certain kinds of centrifuges, you know, for enriching uranium, but not to, to use them in any way that would actually enrich uranium. But they did not meet our expectations of what that would be. Uh, I, I later found out what that meant. We thought that it was, I don't know, I think something like 13 inches in diameter, 10 inches in diameter, it turned out to be 13 inches in diameter. There's nothing in the deal that says it has to be 10 inches. We just thought it would be 10. I mean, it has no no impact whatsoever. I mean, it's that, so if this is the worst that he can come up with, this is no no grounds for, for abrogating the, the agreement. If we pull out of this agreement, why doesn't Iran draw the same conclusion you were just talking about Kim Jong-un drawing, that yeah. once we're a nuclear power, no one can mess with us, and the history of giving up your nuclear weapons or your nuclear weapons program is not such a good story for yeah. some recent dictators. That's in the right. East. No, I mean, uh, you know, the, the Iranian foreign minister, uh, when, he, when he heard that, you know, well, we might, the Americans might get out of the treaty or demand a renegotiation, he goes, well, then who, who gives us back our 10 tons of enriched uranium? They, they destroyed or shipped overseas 10 tons of enriched uranium. 
uh, which would have given them the capability to, to make a handful of nuclear weapons. They don't have that anymore. So, you know, do we get that back? Uh, you know, there is actually a, cl- a clause in the agreement which says that no power uh, who signs the agreement shall make any statement or try to bargain for, for other people not to do trading relationships with Iran. And yet Trump did that. At his first meeting with NATO, he ran around telling people, hey, don't make business deals with Iran. That is so not we're really, violating that the agreement. That wasn't a technical violation. That was a violation of, of the accord. That doesn't seem to matter, though. Uh, I think, you know, I mean, Tom Friedman had a good line the other day. He said, okay, there's a Trump doctor now. See what it is. It's very simple. Obama built it. I busted it. You fix it. That <laughs> seems to be it. He seems to be just, there seems to be a, a, a compulsion to just destroy everything that, that Obama did. And it, it's, it sounds a little pat, uh, but there might be something to that. But there is a way to negotiate or deal with someone like that. He has an insatiable desire to be called a winner. And right. if you declare him the winner, you can do absolutely anything in the fi- fine print. North Korea can can have its nuclear weapons. Iran can do whatever it's want. If they would make a public statement that Trump has won, he yeah. would be fully sat- satisfied he, and he everyone wants, could go on with their business. He wants people to be grateful for what he did. I mean, he's, he's acting on very good terms with Abe, the prime minister of Japan, because he, Abe has learned, in fact, like every world leader has now learned, you, you'd be nice to this guy. You'd be respectful. You laugh at his jokes. You, you know, you tell him, oh, you're doing really well. And that's you, you all flatter you, him that like a cross it's, it's, between a, a, a prince and a dangerous maniac. <laughs> yes, that's right. You're a gentle tiger. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's, it's pretty easy to push his buttons. You know, the, the, the president of China, you know, he found out out too. He gives a little 10-minute lecture to him about, about geopolitics, and he's practically ready to give up the South China Sea. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's kind of um, it's a bit staggering, but that is where we are. So last topic I want to talk about today, Fred, is, is Burma or Myanmar, as I guess we're supposed to call it. I think there's a genocide going on there, the Rohingya. Some people have used that term for some reason— it's not being it's not getting the attention that mass ethnic cleansing should be getting and uh, that other recent episodes i mean if you said this is rwanda happening again it's not it's nothing like the issue that became for the rest of the world although the, the genocide in rwanda happened very quickly and the, mm-hmm. it was a failure to react in a very short period of time this is happening over a somewhat longer period of time why is the united states government not reacting to genocide in Burma. You know, I am told that his daily intelligence briefing, the requirements of this is that there be no more than three topics in the, in the briefing. Really? That each, each topic gets no more than one page, and that what is briefed to him is the consensus. If there's a minority view, don't, don't bother me with that stuff. Tell me what the consensus view is. And... Uh, other than that, you have to get it on Fox and Friends. I you think you have to, and then I don't see anything about this on Fox and Friends either. So uh, I think that's really it. Uh, it has not come up on his radar screen. And, uh, you know, it's, it is interesting. You know, even in the day when, uh, when Colin Powell was completely on the outs in the Bush administration, they wouldn't let him in on the stuff that they considered high-profile but he did go off and, I think, probably single-handedly prevented a small war between India and Pakistan because Cheney and Rumsfeld and Bush really didn't care about India and Pakistan back then. He found 
okay, what is something that I can go have an effect on? That was one of the things, and it, I think it had an enormous effect. I don't think Tillerson is in that business. Tillerson's not doing it, and if he's not doing it, nobody else is doing it. And so, so the reason no like one this, cares about genocide in Burma is that no one cares about genocide in Burma. I think it's as reductionist as that. Yeah, it's been a depressing week, uh, but I've enjoyed week. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. But uh, a highlight has been speaking to Fred Kaplan, the (laughs) the author of the War Stories column in Slate. Fred, thanks for joining me on the show. Thank you. That's it for today's show. Trumpcast was produced by Jason DeLeon with pretty much no help from anyone. But stick around for our Slate Plus segment. I'm about to speak to the comedy writer Steve Waltine, who's been doing the sketches for us. If you're not a Slate Plus member, you can become one by going to slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chabacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chabacasino.com welcome to the family no purchase necessary vgw group void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply